Hello and welcome to Series 2 of The North in Numbers, a podcast that gets the human stories behind the stats. I'll be your host, Annie Goak. As a data journalist, I write local news stories based on statistics for regional papers up and down the country. Each fortnight, I'll be looking at the figures that particularly affect the North and speaking to experts and those most affected to get their take on the issues facing our communities. To keep things COVID safe, all interviews have been conducted online via video call. Today's episode is all about the rising tide of child poverty that has been gripping the North over the last few years, while also taking a look at how the pandemic has been affecting the situation. We spoke to a single mum struggling below the breadline, a teacher who encounters the reality of child poverty in the classroom every day, as well as experts from anti-poverty charities and Trussell Trust food banks to put these shocking figures into perspective. As of March 2020, just before COVID-19 hit, there were estimated to be 1.1 million children living in poverty across the North. That was up by around 300,000 children compared to March 2015. It means that in the five years before the pandemic, the proportion of children living below the breadline had risen from 28% to 33%, affecting one in every three Northern kids. I asked Amanda Bailey, Director of the North East Child Poverty Commission, what factors had been behind the rise. There are a number of things. One is the the costs that families face rising, so housing costs, childcare costs, and that's all been combined with a sort of decade of cuts to the social security system, so in-work benefits, all of which have combined to see this, you know, quite significant increase in child poverty rates in the years leading up to the pandemic. Gary Lemon, Director of Policy and Research at the Trussell Trust, also pointed to benefit cuts as one of the main drivers of rising poverty. What we've seen over the past decade is really quite radical. I don't think people think about how radical welfare reform has been in this country. Um, You know, tens of billions of pounds taken out of working age benefits in particular. But what we've seen in intervening years are the very real effects of that on people's lives. The benefit system for too many people, for large, large numbers of people, um, hundreds of thousands of men, women and children in increasing numbers is not enough for them to be able to afford the absolute essentials. It wasn't pre-pandemic, it isn't post-pandemic. And it's really important as well to know that it isn't just food that people can't afford. It's a whole raft of essentials, it's heating, lighting, sanitary products, winter clothes, you know, they're absolute essentials. Uh, It's that kind of that increasing squeeze, that increasing pressure on working age benefits through policies such as the benefit freeze, uh, you know, freeze on local housing allowance, the benefit cap, the two child limit. These are things that we know are having an effect because you can see the groups that traditionally rely on working age benefits massively overrepresented. In, in our food banks. It's worth pointing out that the figures we've used for this podcast and those used by most charities look at relative poverty, defined as those falling below 60% of the average income after housing costs. The government instead prefers to use absolute poverty, which is defined as income below 60% of the average seen in 2010-11, adjusted for inflation. According to this measure, the number of children in poverty across the North has only increased by 100,000 in the last five years, and the proportion has dropped from 29% to 28%. However, charities say those figures don't take into account the rising cost of living seen since 2010-11. And indeed, if we take demand for food banks as an indicator of poverty, separate figures from the Trussell Trust do seem to show that the situation has been getting worse over the last five years, as Gary explains. 
Unfortunately, the Trust Trust Network, you know, over the past five years, we haven't been opening huge new numbers of food banks everywhere, but we have been seeing very big increases um, in need, like exponential increase in need. In the year to March 2020, the Food Bank Network handed out more than 460,000 emergency food parcels across the north, up from closer to 305,000 in the year to March 2015. The number being handed out to feed children has been rising faster than those for adults in that time. Meanwhile, research carried out by Loughborough University for the End Child Poverty Coalition shows that the North East has been hardest hit. The region has seen the biggest growth in child poverty in the UK over the past five years, with 37% of children living below the breadline in 2019-20, up from 26% in 2014-15. The increase has seen child poverty in the region rise from below the average to the second highest rate in the UK, behind London. However, as Amanda explains, there are key differences in the reasons for child poverty in these areas. The issues are different. So in London, it's very largely around housing costs. Um, which isn't the case in the North East. But for us, it has been around higher unemployment and inward poverty. And then also, I think the freezes and cuts to um, the social security system have had perhaps a disproportionate impact on families in the North East, because if you have a higher proportion of your income coming from that source and there are cuts to that, then clearly that will have a disproportionate impact as well. Official government figures on how the pandemic has affected child poverty won't be available until early 2022. However, there are other indicators that reveal it has had a huge impact. For example, the rise seen in demand for charity services. Joe Kerr is the Director of Impact and Innovation at national anti-poverty charity Turn To Us. So in the first couple of months of um, the pandemic, going back to March, April last year, um, we just saw huge increases on all of um, our services. So we have an online benefits calculator and a grant search. And we also have grant funds that people can apply for. Um, and everything was you know, really maxed out. Our servers went down at one point and we had to get extra server space because so many people were doing benefits calculations. Amanda also points to the rising numbers of people accessing government support. It's clear that there has been a number of people who've been pulled into poverty. Um, you can see that through the you know, huge increases to the number of people who are claiming universal credit. Um, also, for example, free school meals actually have to be um, on a really low income because the threshold is so low for free school meals. Um, but there's actually even then been a significant increase in the numbers of children eligible for that support in the last few months. Um, and actually, I think it's about 26% of all children in the northeast, school children, as of October last year, were eligible for free school meals, which is an astonishing number given how low the threshold is. Meanwhile, according to Gary, the Trussell Trust has also seen more people coming to their food banks for help. What we saw um, when the pandemic hit uh, was a, a big, big immediate increase in need. The Trust handed out nearly 560,000 emergency food parcels across the North during the first year of the pandemic, up sharply by around 100,000 compared to the year before. It, it created this new difficult life event for a whole new swathe of people who are already vulnerable. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's why you saw that kind of uh, extremely steep initial increase in need in our figures, which will really have been to the iceberg stuff because you had all of these other you know, amazing people who kind of stepped in in communities and from local authorities and councils to to help. But um, yeah, you know, it's really clear that 
there are a lot of people um, in, in, in modern UK who don't have very much between them and poverty and destitution. While lockdown has been difficult for everyone, Amanda says it's been particularly hard for parents, especially those on low incomes. That's obviously been hugely stressful for many parents, um, particularly those, you know, who are not in ideal housing conditions. If you've got one or two or even three children at home attempting to, to home learn, if you don't have any access or limited access to appropriate devices to do that or data, paper or, you know, materials that you might need to do to work at home. Um, there's been limited opportunities for people to get out and about. Obviously, that's improving at the moment. But then combined with people's worries around, you know, being able to stay in work, being able to self-isolate, for example, you know. So I think, yeah, for parents, that for all parents, actually, it's been really hugely stressful the last 12 months. But particularly for those who are already most disadvantaged, it's clearly been an extremely anxious time. A government spokesperson said, During the pandemic, we have supported millions of families in need with billions in additional welfare funding, including money to keep children and families well-fed, whilst also protecting jobs through the furlough scheme. The charities we spoke to have welcomed the support offered by the government, but also worry that it might not go far enough. Gary from the Trussell Trust raised concerns that these measures are not tackling the underlying causes of child poverty. Particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, we did see real action. We saw £20 uh, added on to the standard rate of universal credit. We saw tens of millions of pounds given to local authorities in England. I mean, you know, we saw the furlough scheme, for goodness sakes, which I like to think of it as middle class benefits. Um, but, it, you know, like a huge support, income support from government, unprecedented. I can't welcome those measures enough. Obviously, it wasn't enough, but it it prevented a, a much wider catastrophe, frankly. Unfortunately, a lot of those measures are temporary and have been framed only in terms of this is emergency stuff for the pandemic. And it kind of ignores, it ignores the fact that we all know very well that these big structural issues have been building up and building up for years before the pandemic. Joe from Turn to Us also pointed out that these measures have helped some people more than others. After those measures came into place, of course, that was an improvement and we saw demand on our services go down a bit. Um, but what we then saw is that the people who were already really struggling in um, society were the worst affected. Um, so if you were, you know, in, as, as I am in a full time job and could work from home or as people I know um, on furlough, that's a relatively stable existence. If you're in precarious work, if you're in work that has to take place outside, um, if people were shielding or self-isolating in that situation, that's really appalling. Um, people who are in single-headed households, single parents, um, really struggling to take care of kids who are off school, not being able to work, um, really badly affected. And we saw different communities, you know, Black, Asian and minoritised ethnic communities across the UK worse affected because of several factors that 
but it ultimately could be described as um, systemic racism in our society. Um, but yeah, so so you know across the the whole of the UK, some people have financially done quite well out of the pandemic, which seems odd, but they have. Um, but you know, for certain groups and um, for people who are already struggling, it has been incredibly hard. Vicky Waterman is a single mum of two from Durham who's been struggling financially for the last few years, despite working full time. She spoke to us about her experience of lockdown. I'm glad I was furloughed because I don't know what I would have done with the children if I hadn't been. They were off school. There was nothing else. There was nobody else that I could have turned to for them. So it's just as well that I was furloughed from work. I mean, the financial impact kind of down the line of that is they're at home constantly. I'm having to feed them more. Um, So the way that... I even cooked and prepared meals, changed completely. So, you know, we started growing our own vegetables. Um, I had the time to then do it, but which is, is it was a fabulous thing to do and it was a lovely thing to do with the kids. But yeah, I mean, it was kind of a case of, of preparing everything from scratch as much as I possibly could and buying essentials, you know, bread, milk, flour, those types of things, and then making as much as we could from whatever we had. So, but I mean, yeah, childcare wise, it's just as well I was followed really because I don't know what I would have done otherwise. The pandemic has also put Vicky in a precarious position when it comes to housing. I was in rented accommodation and the landlady was impacted by the pandemic. So she's now having to sell that house. Um, I'm now in a position where in four weeks time, I've got nowhere to live. So I can't really be helped by social housing because there's nothing available in the area that I live at the minute. So, yeah, I mean, I'm still in the process of kind of looking for somewhere else to live, but I'm having to move my children's schools and things like that and dealing with all of that on top of going to work and looking after two children and just day-to-day life is a lot. The fact that Vicky is struggling financially is not unusual. Nationally, children with a single parent are nearly twice as likely to be living in poverty as those whose parents are a couple. Single parents also make up a disproportionate number of people using food banks. Gary explains why this is the case. I think particularly for certain families, uh, so like single parents, which is mostly single mums, let's be honest, life can be more expensive and it can be harder to uh, find work. And so single parents are a group of people that are more likely to need working age benefits and it's working age benefits that have seen these really, really radical deep cuts. Uh, It leaves them much more vulnerable to poverty, deep poverty, destitution and, and needing a food bank. While Vicky is not in the extreme end of poverty that is usually seen in food banks, she still requires benefits to supplement her income, even though she has a full time job. I became a single parent five years ago um, and the triggering me coming back to work after having my youngest daughter changed for me from being on a, a legacy benefit then to a, a universal credit. And I've been on that consistently since then, um, even though I have progressed in the workplace, you know, I've been promoted, I've, I've received a few pay rises and it's still not really enough to make ends meet week to week. So I still do get top up benefit in the form of universal credit. Obviously, I wish I didn't need to rely on a universal credit top up. That's the, that's the dream. Um, but that seems as if it's a long way off. I'm still doing really well at work. I've got a good job. I've got a good career ahead of me. But it just feels like it's it's still quite far out of my reach, being able to be completely benefit-free and not need it. 
It was actually returning to work that led to Vicky's financial struggles. Initially, um, for me to be able to come back to work, it was a cost of £1,400 to put both my children to childcare. And that was before I'd even stepped foot back into the workplace. I needed to pay those upfront costs. Um, and the way that the universal credit system would work is that you'd be paid on receipt. So, you'd, you know, you'd get your invoice to say that it was paid. Then you'd be able to submit that and then they would reimburse you 85% of those costs. But then they would also make deductions on top of that based on your earnings anyway. So you never really receive an 85%. Um, but that was also five weeks later. So, you know, you'd be you'd be paying for your childcare in one assessment period. Five weeks later, you'd, you'd then get reimbursed for that. And it was just a constant on the back foot playing catch up with childcare. And then, you know, you'd kind of get into a position where, you know, things would be okay. Then the summer holidays would come around or the Easter holidays and it would start all over again. So that initial upfront costs for me, I ended up um, borrowing some money from my grandfather and also taking out um, a high interest loan just to be able to come back to work. And that's something that I'm actually still paying off three years down the line. Again, Vicky is not alone here. In-work poverty is becoming an increasing problem. The proportion of children living in poverty, despite at least one person in their family working, is at a record high. In fact, three in every four children growing up in poverty live in a working household. A government spokesperson said, We know that the best route out of poverty is well-paid work, which is why our multi-billion plan for jobs is helping people across the country back into the workplace. However, Joe at Turn to Us says the growing problem of in-work poverty shows that employment is not the solution. It's a it's a huge issue, um, and that is, I think, uh, a trend certainly over the last ten years or longer that work no longer pays. And um, we really we kind of glorify work. We we see that if you have a job, you can provide for your family. That's going to be you know the answer, and that is absolutely not the answer. Vicky is also unimpressed with the government's focus on work. I think the make work pay tagline has always been a little bit of a bone of contention as far as work concerned because um, it's not that I don't want to work. I love my job. Absolutely do. And I think there are very few people that don't want to go and earn a living for their own children. But especially in the beginning, I would have been significantly better off financially if I hadn't worked. And there were times when I just I thought to myself, you know, is this worth it? Is this worth the hassle? Especially kind of ringing backwards and forwards with Universal Credit when things weren't right. And I felt as if I was constantly on the phone to them and I, I didn't really kind of know what was going in my bank from one month to the next. And there were occasions where I almost did kind of, you know, just say to work that, you know, I can't keep on putting myself through this. Um, you know, I'm glad I didn't, but even now it's, it's still a, an ongoing issue. Whatever the reasons for people falling into poverty, behind all of these statistics are real people whose lives have been affected. I asked Joe what the reality is for people living below the breadline. We, we talk at Town to Us about thriving, like we want people to have enough income to thrive rather than survive. And so, so many people are just surviving. You know, I, I speak quite often to a woman called Karen, um, who does quite a lot of work with us. And, you know, she she talks about how that £20 extra universal credit over the winter, that was her being able to turn the heating on rather than not 
uh, turning the heating on and it's it's lovely and sunny where I am today but you know it was a cold long rubbish winter where you had to be at home so the thought of people not being able to do something really simple that we take for granted of turning the heating on is just yeah it's it's grim frankly um, and yeah these are these are the conversations it's do you turn your heating on do you feed yourself or do you feed your kids you know and, and how many meals are you going to be able to afford as individuals within your family? Um, that's the that's the definition of, um, of financial hardship for the people that, that we talk to. Vicky also opened up to us about what financial difficulty has looked like for her family. There were periods where one month I'd pay the gas and then the next month I'd pay the electric because I couldn't pay both at once. Um, my children don't go to, even now, don't really go to any kind of extracurricular activities they don't go to kind of gymnastics or swimming or things like that just because I can't afford to send them to those things um and my worst nightmare in particularly my worst financial months where we get one of the kids coming home from school on nursery with a with a party invite because I knew they did need you know potentially need an outfit depending on what they were doing and a present and I'd need to get them there and then you know if they needed kind of drinks and snacks if they were you know a play park or something like that and it was yeah then that's a horrible position to be in to be able to think you know I'm, I'm dreading them coming home and getting an invitation to a party because I can't afford to send them to it. As Amanda from the Northeast Child Poverty Commission explains this kind of experience is common and can be very damaging for children. I think the fundamental thing about poverty is that it kind of prevents that sort of inclusive childhood where you are able to take part in things at school, um, go on trips, take part in after school clubs, um, have your friends over for tea, um, you know, be able to do things like celebrate your birthday and things which many people will take for granted, um, but actually have a cumulative effect in terms of people being isolated and not being able to fully participate in childhood or in society. And so I think it's that which then can obviously have a a really big impact on people's well-being, uh, which can be a lifelong impact, but also on physical health, um, mental health, and then on things like their educational outcomes, which then in turn means that they're more likely to be in poverty as an adult. Um, so it's a, it's a really broad ranging um, impact. Uh, I, you know, many people talk about the sort of stigma and shame of poverty, um, which clearly has a serious effect on children and people's well-being. Um, but it's that sense of exclusion from wider society, I think, is probably one of the most defining features. Sammy Wright is the Vice Principal of Southmore Academy in Sunderland and a member of the Social Mobility Commission. As a teacher in a particularly deprived area, He's seen firsthand how poverty is impacting children. Kids can be bullied for poverty, absolutely. But I think that it's more about how poverty distorts their behaviour as a whole. And it distorts different children in different ways. Sometimes it kind of gives them this sense of um, uh, inadequacy, you know, a sense of there's a cap on what I can be. You know, look around me. I don't have those role models and those examples of things where people have you know, quote unquote, succeeded in life, um, and therefore I can't. Uh, Sometimes it's the thing which provokes students to act out and act up and try and impress. And then sometimes it can be, you know, really, really direct. There are some terribly, terribly sad situations you do see in schools where kids are so far mired in poverty and neglect that they physically 
demonstrated, as in they they are unclean, um, they're not dressed properly, and that absolutely can become a source of really, really hurtful bullying. Child poverty is also linked to poor development, obesity, and both physical and mental illness. As Gary from the Trussell Trust explains, these issues have a knock-on effect on children later in life. Not being able to eat properly, uh, not having a space to study, not having security of where you live, these experiences affect children now uh, for life. And if you just like take, it sounds weird to say it, but if you take aside like the moral aspect of letting children in a rich country go hungry, it just makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense because you're blighting these children's future uh, opportunities. It's much harder to catch up when you've, uh, you know, your your kind of academic progress has been stymied because you're unable to concentrate because you're really bloody hungry in the morning at school. You know, it's appalling and it makes it makes it absolutely no sense. For Vicky, it's also having an effect on her own mental health. I think the impact of mental health just by being a single parent anyway, it is very, very stressful. The book stops with you and you've not really got anywhere else to turn. So then you've kind of got no financial safety net at all, any change in circumstances, and you're kind of thrown into disarray completely again. At the minute, it's something that I'm dealing with. So, I mean, I'd love to sit here and say, no, you know, I kind of, I think they're okay and they don't quite realise, but kids do pick up on that kind of thing and I shield them from as much as I possibly can. But at the end of the day, it does weigh very, very heavily on me that I'm not giving them the life that I feel as if that they deserve. Because they don't go to swimming and gym class and things like that, like their other friends do, and they have missed parties. And, you know, I feel as if they deserve more than sometimes I can give them. Guilt is the main takeaway from it all, I think, regardless. Um, yeah, I feel very guilty all of the time. Gary stresses that we shouldn't underplay the impact on parents when talking about child poverty. One of the things that I would like urge caution with is like too much of a focus just on child poverty. Let's be honest, like these kids have got families and parents and adults need as much attention as their kids. Very, very commonly I hear from parents that of course they go without of course they go hungry um to in order that their children get a decent meal and i know from um like uh, qualitative research as well that often children notice that they're eating while their parents are not which is very upsetting well we've talked a lot about food poverty and children and parents going hungry it's also really important to highlight the impact of poverty when it comes to education Official government figures show that the poorest children fall behind at every stage of education, already starting school behind their peers developmentally and doing less well once they get there. Unlike food poverty, which is directly related to a lack of resources, this is more to do with the issues that often go hand in hand with poverty, rather than the poverty itself, as Sammy explains. It's really important to say that certainly educationally, the absence of money in itself is not a problem. You know, we live in a society where, you know, we, the state does provide the education. So actually, the absence of money shouldn't equate to uh, doing worse at school. And in, for many students, it doesn't. The issue is where poverty 
leads to other impacts, to high stress environments in the home, to uh, you know social problems, to to um, instability in the workplace, to very frequent moving. All of these things are the, are the problems that actually cause underachievement in schools. While schools have been trying to close the attainment gap for years, research from the Social Mobility Commission showed that last year there were only 11 secondary schools across the country that had managed to do so, and none of them were standard state schools. Even in schools where disadvantaged children were performing much better than the national average for all pupils, they were still far behind their more affluent peers in their own school. Amanda from the North East Child Poverty Commission doesn't believe that schools are to blame. There's only so much that teachers can do and that many of the challenges that schools in the North East, for example, are facing are outside of the school gates. They're not within their control. Or, you know, the North East has the highest proportion of pupils eligible for free school meals of anywhere in the country. And if as a school, that's the sort of position you're starting from, there's quite a lot you can do as a school to address that, but actually much of it's not your responsibility. Do you know what I mean? So one of the, the most important things the government could do to kind of address school performance or whatever is actually to tackle child poverty, as opposed to just thinking about whether teachers good enough. Falling behind in school can have a cumulative effect when it comes to achievements later on in life, with disadvantaged pupils also being far less likely to go on to higher education, which generally leads to higher earnings in adulthood. Joe from Turn to Us explains the problem. We're seeing um, children's um, longer term outcomes being adversely affected by this absolutely so in the day-to-day it might be about not having the right equipment for school that might mean um you know not being able to do the test or um complete the project or go to the sports day or whatever you know in in the moment but i think the thing that's really really worrying is that kids that are growing up in poverty being affected by poverty are getting Um, worse results at school, um, worse options when they leave school um, and their lives are really adversely affected um, in the longer term. For Sammy, the issue is that opportunities are directly linked to attainment, which puts poorer children on the back foot from the start. The problem that you have is essentially you are setting up a competition between those from disadvantaged backgrounds and those from non-disadvantaged backgrounds and you know who's going to win. And at the end of the day, you know, one might turn around and say, "Okay, look, this is fair enough that maybe when you're dealing with such difficulty, you just don't have the bandwidth to deal with education as well. And that's fine. And that's fair enough. And Maybe we shouldn't obsess about the gap. But if we say that, we also then need to turn around and say, "Okay, let's not have educational grades as gatekeepers to all the opportunities in society. Really, what we're doing is we're saying those who are the winners in the education system already can now go on to the most prestigious institutions and become even more of the winners. The pandemic has also highlighted another issue when it comes to poverty and education, with many disadvantaged children not having access to the devices needed to take part in remote learning. We're seeing people um, applying to grants from for um, town to us grants, stating that they need technology to be able to do homeschooling um, because schools can't provide that equipment. Local authorities, I think, were meant to and, and weren't able to meet the demand. So um, that's that has been a big thing. Um, we've heard stories of kids trying to do their home learning on their parents' mobile phone. So there's like one mobile mobile phone in a family and they're sharing it round to to get like school work done which is obviously not a sustainable 
digital learning method. It's, it's terrible. Now, having um, a laptop or a tablet to be able to communicate, to be able to learn, that's as crucial as the actual education itself. That's as crucial as going to school. As of June 2021, the government had delivered more than 1.3 million devices to help children with remote learning, although many people have criticised how slow the process has been. Regardless, the barriers poverty has put in the way of education during this time go beyond devices. The devices help, right? But they're not the only thing. It's how to use them, how to support kids on them, because it is an absolute fact that once you start the lesson online, unless there's some kind of structure or control behind it, kids are straight on their phones. Right? They do not sit there and actually pay attention to every last little bit. So to give them a computer, yes, it does something, but it does not do very much. You need to have the other support there around it. Sammy and many others believe that the way education has been handled during the pandemic will mean that children living in poverty will fall even further behind. We have really seriously let them down. And what's going to happen in the summer is we're going to see the gap widening. There's no way that the gap won't widen because the way we've been asked to award get grades is we've been asked to look at performance in the summer. And if it's about performance, then logically, inevitably, the students who've missed the most through lockdown are going to do the worst. The students who've missed the most are the disadvantaged. Sammy is clear that the blame shouldn't be placed on parents. You can be a brilliant parent. You can be a fantastic parent, but all your energy is trying to actually make sure that your kid is safe. You have none left for school and you have none left for trying to make sure that they do their uh, uh, homework or engage with remote learning. If you're not doing a job that can be done remotely, you know, if you're a bus driver, a delivery driver, if you're doing shifts, if you're in a care home, you can't do that. And, you know, I've taught for 20 years and I'm under no illusions as to, to what kids will and won't do. And I'll tell you one thing, they bloody will not do their distance learning if they don't have someone sitting at the table with them. And the thing about that that is, is very damaging for parents is they know it. And, you know, there is a sense of shame for the parents there. They feel inadequate. You know, they look maybe at, at peers and, and other parents and think, well, they can do this, they can do that. I know as a parent myself, I spend half my time looking at other parents and thinking how much better they are than me. Um, and I don't have much reason for it. But actually, if you are in a situation where you see your child is unhappy and isn't functioning very well in school, then actually that's something which is going to have a very, very big impact. Yet again, we come back to the sense of shame that parents living in poverty feel. The judgment of others is something that Vicky is very aware of particularly because she feels she doesn't fit into the stereotypes of poverty. It's been huge for me to kind of speak about certain things because I don't think people would think that I was classed as being in poverty, you know, just because my children are perfectly clean and in clean clothes and I am, they don't realise that, you know, behind the scenes I'm counting every single penny just to be able to buy bread and milk some weeks. So, yeah, there is a huge, huge stigma with regards to poverty um, and particularly single parents. I think we get such a bad, we have such a bad reputation. Nobody ever kind of goes into this expecting to be in this position. Um, I certainly didn't. And, you know, we're the ones that are kind of picking up the pieces and still trying to work and still trying to pay our bills and still trying to raise children at the same time. And yet we're also dealing with this, the stigma of being single parent in poverty. I'm very, very keen to always say, 
working parent, um, you know, single working parent, because I feel as if people automatically assume that I'm not. Joe believes that a lot of this stigma is coming from the media. You know, if you read any news media at all, um, you'll see there is deliberate open judgment from some kind of more tabloid sources, but more insidious, quiet judgment as well from a lot of other news media, a lot of television programs, you know, we kind of recognise those like Benefit Street and things like that. That's become like very ingrained in, in all of our consciousness. And even if we don't judge others because we're, you know, kind of good people or we think we are and we we know not to take a judgmental approach, um, we could judge ourselves. Um, and that's, I think Vicky was speaking to that when she talked about guilt. Um, you know, that's a kind of inward looking thing and, and self-judgment, which can be really, really tough. For Vicky, it's this sense of shame that stops a lot of people being open about their circumstances, meaning many might not even notice poverty when it's affecting those around them. They don't realise that it might be affecting the next door neighbour or their friend or, you know, their cousin or the person along the road. The reason that we kind of keep it so close to our chest is, is because, you know, we're ashamed to be classed as living in poverty. You know, it's a dirty word, isn't it? However, Amanda is hopeful that the tide might be turning. There are a lot of people who over the last 12 months have needed to come into contact with the social security system who perhaps never dreamt that they would go anywhere near universal credit. But actually that does demonstrate that, you know, not none of us knows what the, what the future holds. And when people face tough times, we, you know, they do need a strong social security system to provide that safety net um, so that they don't fall into poverty. I'm, I'm hopeful that people maybe will be a bit more empathetic around that um, going forward, that actually, you know, things happen in life and you can't always plan for them. It's these shifting attitudes that Gary hopes will lead to real change in terms of government action. It's like a precursor to the policy change that we need. It's only until government understands that people care enough about this stuff that they will enact the policy change that we desperately need to see. And, you you know, you might see that as pie in the sky that, you know, we're not going to see big radical action from government. But I would I would direct your listeners attention towards Marcus Rashford and um, uh, how effective he has been at raising the issue in a way that is just perfectly framed, i.e. this is just wrong. It's, this is clearly wrong and we need to see action taken and government jumped to it pretty damn quickly. While Marcus Rashford's campaigning has led to changes such as the government pledging to support children on free school meals over the summer holidays with food vouchers and announcing a funding package to help alleviate child food poverty, Joe doesn't think that the hard work is over. It, it needs to be kept up and it needs to be accelerated and we need more voices. Um, because that's the, the problem when, when one person kind of stands alone as a figurehead, as Marcus Rashford has, is, is like, you know, that that's a very like amazing thing that, that he's done, but he needs to be supported by others. And we need, I think, more people in, in different political parties, different sides of the debate. Um, we need, yeah, more comprehensive change to happen, but hopefully that, that public opinion can shift more and more. 
Amanda would also like to see the response to child poverty move beyond Marcus Rashford's campaign. I think over the last year, there's been a really big focus on food and people's access to food and food insecurity, which is obviously important. And there's been particular issues around people being able to access food over the last year. But I think we also really need to ensure the conversation kind of moves beyond that as well, because I personally have real concerns around um, emergency food aid becoming a sort of normalised response to child poverty and emergency food aid becoming institutionalised when actually we need long-term sustainable action to tackle child poverty that's dignified and doesn't involve stigma or shame. In terms of actual policies that charities want to see from the government, the main one that is brought up again and again is the £20 universal credit uplift. On the 1st of October this year, you see the end of the universal credit uplift. And that's a biggie for me. That's a symbolic turning point. Will government really cut 20 quid per week, which has been a a lifeline for millions of households, just as we're coming out of the pandemic, ending furlough. It's something Vicky also feels strongly about. That uplift cannot be cut. That £20 a week for families that are already on the breadline, that needs to stay where it is because we're looking, you know, we're looking at a generation of people being plunged into poverty anyway. And if that ends and also coincides with, you know, the furlough scheme ending, when they cut that £20 per week for these families, it's going to be such, such they're going to be in dire circumstances, myself included. £80 a month is massive. That's like my gas bill, my electricity bill. That's, you know, a few other things that I could pay. Um, I, I can't even kind of get my head around the fact that they're even thinking about cutting that, to be honest. I asked Gary what we can expect to see if the uplift is cut in October. If that universal credit um, money is cut, then the effect of that will be that food banks will have to pick up the slack and we'll see more people coming through the doors who wouldn't have needed to, undoubtedly, in large numbers. Other policies that charities would like to see include greater investment in benefits, for example, by scrapping the two-child limit and the benefit cap. For Sammy, that boils down to one thing. If you were to ask me to put it very, very bluntly, I'd say, if you don't want children in poverty, you give their parents enough money. And that would kind of solve the problem, I think. Uh, and I know I'm being glib there, but you know sometimes we can overcomplicate this. If you give people the money, and research all over the world does indicate this, that actually giving them extra cash is probably the best thing you can do because they know how to spend it. And they know the things that are important for them. While some people might balk at the idea of the government spending more money to tackle the issue, Sammy urges us to remember that there are real people behind these numbers. We have to understand that these are human beings. They're not statistics. They're people who need support and nurture and help. And that is expensive. And as Vicky explains, spending money to tackle child poverty will likely save the government money in the long run. It's just allowing somebody to be able to stand on their own two feet. People are more than capable to get themselves out of a situation that they don't want to be in, to get themselves out of poverty. They just need temporary support to be able to do it, which is less of a drain on the economy, they're not giving them that temporary support and then they're not being able to do that for a longer period of time. Families in general, children are an investment. It's all of an investment into our future. And if they're not going to allow us to do that, then I don't know where where we're headed as a country, to be honest.
While at this stage, the government has no plans to extend the £20 increase to universal credit beyond October and has yet to come up with a clear strategy specifically to tackle child poverty, those working on the front line remain hopeful. Uh, It's kind of clear that there is a desire from people to take the opportunity not to go back to how things were, to to want to build a better post-pandemic world and a better post-pandemic UK. And I think that it's actually a really, really uh, important uh, opportunity right now to uh, kind of seize that public desire for change and for improvement. Um, and I, I really, really, we're going to be doing everything that we possibly can. And I know our kind of partners in, in, the, in the charity sector and beyond are going to work really hard in order to like harness these kind of potential um, changes in public perception that actually turn that into something helpful and useful that ends the need for food banks. I think um, this, is, this is a big conversation in a way that I don't think it was a few years ago and I know a lot of incredible smart people who care about this stuff um, including but not limited to Marcus Rashford so I, I do have hope that while there are these conversations being had and there are initiatives going that we can um, make a difference and we can reverse these trends and we can design a system that is fair and equitable and, and works for everyone. There is a sense building that this might be the big fight, the fight that is actually, you know, has some kind of sense of moral definition to our time and that there might be a sense in which inequality has risen so far that it has become stark enough in its moral clarity to become a bit of a rallying call for people. Thank you for listening to another episode of The North in Numbers, written and hosted by me, Annie Goke, and produced by Mark McGill. A huge thank you to all my guests for speaking with me about this incredibly important topic. Join us again on the 2nd of July when we take a look at how the post-lockdown race for a space has affected the housing market in the North. The North in Numbers is a laudable production.